Welcome to this week's edition of Everything Fast Pitch by Fast Pitch Prep. Coach Don and I are here in the Cherokee Batting Range Podcast Studio getting ready to record episode number 185. Got a really good show lined up for you today. In our warm-up segment, we're going to talk about our City of the Week, Player of the Week, Equipment Tip of the Week, Did You Know, Have a Good Listener Question, and of course, Paige's Power Play. Our lead-off segment, we're going to do our umpire grab bag. We had four questions that had been brought to our attention, and we are lucky enough to uh, have our good friend Jeff Meekins come on and uh, give us the umpire's version and uh, the umpire's uh, solution to these uh, questions, so we're very excited about that. In our cleanup topic, we're going to talk about recruiting questions, uh, recruiting visit questions, and things that you can and should be thinking about asking when you and your daughter go on a school visit, and honestly, even just throughout the process of getting to know more about a school. And then our coaching tip of the week, we're going to talk about why pitchers should attack the zone. Before we do that, let's talk about our sponsors. First off, the Anderson Bat Company. Everything Fast Pitch is very proud to have Anderson Bat Company as our presenting sponsor. Anderson Bat Company is using the latest and greatest bat technology to corner the market in the fast pitch world. They have the minus 9 rocket tech, the minus 10 carbon, and the minus 11 carbon light. Anderson Bat Company is using this technology to put a high-performing bat in the hands of hitters that really know the difference between a good bat and a great bat. We're also working with Anderson to provide a discount for all of our listeners. Go to the Anderson Bat Company website and order your bats. Use the EFP20 discount, which is for everything fast pitch, and you'll get a 20% discount. It's a great way for you to save a little bit of money on a great bat and also help support everything fast pitch at the same time. Please make sure you take care of that uh, EFP20. Get your bats ordered. Anderson's doing a great job for us. If you do the EFP20, you get a 20% discount. Saves you a bunch of money on a really good bat and helps support everything fast pitch at the same time. While we're talking about supporting everything fast pitch, let's talk about patreon.com slash everything fast pitch. If you're in a position where you can help us financially, if you can become a patron, Coach Don and I really do appreciate the support that we get. The patrons are the people that have kept this podcast alive. Uh, they are the people that are paying the bills and allowing us to keep going. And uh, if you're in a position where you can, if you see value in what we're doing, go to patreon.com slash everythingfastpitch and become a patron. It's something that we appreciate and goes a long way towards allowing us to keep doing the things that we're doing and to try to continue to improve and upgrade the quality of the podcast. Hey, Tori, and just as a side note, too, with uh, Anderson, um, all of their products actually should qualify for that EFP20 discount. Is that right? right. Yeah, so if you go to the website and you put in that uh, uh, discount code, you should get that discount on a uh, baseball, fast pitch, or slow pitch, any, uh, any of the bats that they have. Go ahead and take advantage of that. And again, also make sure you become a patron if you're in a position where you can do so. So for our warm-up segment, Don, our city of the week is Newburyport, Massachusetts. Awesome. We love Massachusetts. Yeah. Got a very short list of states that I have not uh, spent a, a lot of time in, of course, with all these years of coaching softball and recruiting and things like that. And I have to admit that Massachusetts is a place that I've never been recruiting. Wow. Which yeah, up uh, north. That's... Yeah. Which uh, struck me as as unusual when I started thinking about it. Newberry Report, thank you very much. Uh, for, obviously, people there are doing a good job of spreading the word about everything fast pitch. As we always do, we're asking you to find people that have not listened, that are not regulars, and get them to take a shot at listening to a couple of episodes. I'm confident that once they do, they will be hooked and they will keep coming back. Uh, it's good for us to see the numbers growing. Um, you know, we're very lucky uh, to be able to monitor from week to week where what the numbers are and, and places that we're doing well. And it's always exciting to see a big jump in, in any area. So thank you very much and uh, please spread the word. 
Our player of the week this week is Kelsey Oviat. She's a player from California, plays for the Lady Wolfpack 16 and under team. They play out of Fremont, California. And Kelsey's a catcher and had one of those dream weekends behind the plate. Said that she struggled a little bit at the plate, didn't have the weekend that she would love to have had uh, hitting the ball, uh, but uh, made several outstanding plays throughout a bunch of runners. Did a great job of, uh, of leading the team from that catching position. You know, Coach Don and I have a, a warm spot in our heart for all catchers because they for do sure. so much work. Yeah. Um, and I'm guessing uh, we would have seen her uh, hustling down the line to back up first base and all kinds <laughs> of good stuff. Awesome job, yeah. Kel. So congratulations, Kelsey. You are the Fast Pitch Prep Player of the Week. Our equipment tip of the week, the Square Cuts Training Disc. As we've been talking about them for quite a while now, we want to just keep uh, beating the drum. The Square Cuts Training Disc, our Coach Don and I are my first endeavor in the equipment business. First thing that we developed that we thought is really useful and beneficial that uh, uh, the people need to have in their in their collection of tools. And we want you to get them. They are $49.95 a dozen. If you go to the fastpitchprep.com website, uh, you can order them there. Just uh, click on the button. Um, it's going to take you through the process, and we will get them shipped out to you right away. But it's a very good tool. I mean, it allows you to do an awful lot of things. It's going to give you instant feedback as a hitter. And it's one of those things that I think it, it's almost dummy-proof. It makes it impossible for a player to fool themselves. You know, it, tell, it tattles on you every time you take a swing that's not a strong swing. And it's a great tool, and that's why we intended, uh, why we created them. Tori, I had a new story for us. I had a, a new student come in, and um, one that worked very hard at home all the time. During the workout, you know, we used our square cuts training discs, and um, the first thing that the mother said is, "Wow, those aren't going to be loud down in my basement," you know, because she was hitting them, and it was it's a lot different sound right. than uh, than a regular softball. And she says, "Boy, all we hear is just banging away in the basement," and she was tickled to get some square cuts training disc. You know, I hadn't even thought about that. Right? And a lot of people do train in the basement, train at home. And yeah, out in the garage making the neighbors mad. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of an awesome off little side note. Yeah. yeah. So go ahead and order your square cuts training discs. Go to the fastpitchprep.com website. Uh, click on the link again, $49.95 a dozen. Uh, for all of our listeners, there's a discount. It's iListen21. It's going to save you 10%. And as uh, always, if you go ahead and get those ordered, we'll get them sent out to you right away. I was going to say, and you can sleep well while they're training. Right? Yeah. yeah, you can uh, not have to worry when your daughter's super excited about the tournament, gets up at 6 o'clock in the morning to take some swings before you head to the ballpark. There you go. All right, so Don, did you know in the Division One ranks, the most consecutive bases on balls was 14, 14 straight at-bats, to for, get walked. For the hitter, not... For the hitter. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it might be kind of bad on the other the, end. the pitcher to be bragging about walking 14 straight. <laughs> right. Um, and of course, I picked one with a name that I'm going to struggle with, but it's Darian Tautalafua, played at Long Beach State. Tautalafua. I was going to say from one of the Hawaiian teams. Yeah, Tautalafua. Yeah. 14 consecutive walks, playing at Long Beach State in 2006. So it's not super long ago. This is uh, one of those that... Uh, has a chance to be challenged. She was probably a very good hitter, and they were just, you know, trying to work around her, I guess. Right. right? And and my guess is uh, that there are some intentional walks mixed in there, but yeah. I, I don't think anybody's ever been intentionally walked That's 14 straight That's some awesome times. patience. Yeah, and uh, definitely a great way to help your team by getting on base, so your on-base percentage is super high. So um, 14 consecutive walks, which is amazing to me. All right, our listener question this week comes to us from Coach Lisa. Coach Lisa's got a 
question about uh, some discussions she's been having with her coaching staff. Her coaching staff has got some uh, coaches that are baseball background, and they were working on covering steals. And Coach Lisa, with her softball background, was using the shortstop to cover. And they had a discussion about how in baseball, you know, we switch it up quite often and we'll have the shortstop cover some of the time, have the second baseman cover other times. And how in baseball, they will typically have a little, you know, signal system where they, you know, kind of communicate with each other for who's going to take the throw if there's a steal. One of the things that uh, Lisa was curious about is, uh, I guess, why we have the tradition in, in fast pitch of having the shortstop cover so much of the time and why that hall has developed the way that it has. And so, uh, Lisa, here's how I would start off this discussion. One of the biggest differences, I think, between baseball and fast pitch is that the bunting game is so much more prevalent in fast pitch than it is in baseball. Now at the major league level, I think, you know, they take away your your uh, membership card if you ever try to bunt. Right. <laughs> so we know that bunting is something that's not as emphasized in, in baseball. And because the bases are so long, you know, the idea of, a pitcher covering bunts or making plays on bunts or the third baseman playing all the bunts makes a little bit more sense versus in fa- uh, fast pitch where so often we've got the first baseman needs to be in a position to charge bunts and to make plays on bunts that that pretty usually almost uh, consistently sets us up for the best pattern is for the second baseman to expect to cover first and the shortstop to expect to cover second, which would then include taking throws on steals. No, I think that's that's exactly right, Tori. And um, we talked about it a little bit earlier when we were talking about the running path, that the field is so much smaller, the plays are so much quicker, there's just not enough time, and we've got to be really efficient with everything. It's difficult as a second baseman to get across to cover a throw from a catcher when you're moving that way. You're barely getting there at yeah. the same time because you got to hold and make sure that the ball's not hit to you. So it makes it pretty challenging. And uh, I think it's just the size of the field, the quickness of the game, and in being efficient, it just makes more sense, I think, right? right. Well, and I think uh, there are, can be situations where you would change it up. Now, we will run a, a variation of this when we've got somebody that we think is a slapper up at the plate. And when we've got our, our slap defense working, um, in that situation, a lot of times we will have uh, the second baseman cover on steals because the hitter's intention is to try to hit the ball usually on the left side of the field. And so rather than having the shortstop vacator position or trying to do two things at the same time, um, we'll have the second baseman take the throws at second on the steals, um, but only in situations where we're really confident that it's a lefty slapper. And you might be pitching her outside right. to force a, a ball to be hit to the left side. And yeah. so trying to think of those uh, situations, and it's always about playing percentages, trying to play to what's most likely to happen. But we know bunting in short game is so prevalent in our game that I think that's why the uh, best strategy is to usually have your shortstop be the person to cover steals um, and usually have your second baseman be the person's available to cover bunts. And Don, you hit on a very important point. If the second baseman's in a position where she can cover first on a bunt, she's got a long way to go to get to cover second on a steal. On a steal. Mm-hmm. And again, in baseball, runner at first, what are we thinking? Double play. Well, we're thinking double play. The shortstop and second baseman are both about equal distance to second, and they're kind of cheating towards second. So yeah. for both of them, it's a shorter distance because they're thinking double play versus our game. We don't, we don't really play for the double play as a, a mainline strategy very uh, nearly as often. 
you know, baseball, if you get a runner on, you know, the whole idea is, well, we'll get a double play, get two outs, and, you know, boom, the inning's Out over. the inning, yeah. And so I think there's just a lot of different factors that have uh, led to the place that we're at with the shortstop being that primary cover person. Lisa, hopefully that will help you explain to your coaching staff, you know, kind of why baseball and softball are a little bit different. Hopefully everybody's mind will be put at ease. And I think if you experiment with it, you're going to, you're going to find out, right? Right. What's going to work. And again, there's nothing wrong with experimenting with it, you know, and seeing if there's some times when it doesn't apply. Um, If we've got a slower pitcher pitching and it would be beneficial for our shortstop to be way over in the hole. Mm-hmm. Well, then our second baseman is probably going closer to second base, too. And in that situation, on a steal, it might make more sense. A batter, we're only going to work you know, right. away from a lefty or... Or, or, or jamming a, a, a righty. righty. And yeah. so there, there's it's not a never-say-never never kind of a situation, um, but I think predominantly we're going to still see the shortstops in the best position to cover second on a steal. Yeah, I was going to say, if it's just a straight-up, we don't think they're stealing, but it happens, shortstops there. Right. Yeah. All right, so that's going to take us into this week's segment of Paige's Power Play. Hey, Paige here, and I got a few questions for you. Have you ever felt afraid to look dumb? Have you ever felt afraid to fail, to mess up, to say the wrong thing, to do the wrong thing, to have the wrong answer? If yes, if you're thinking yes right away, you are not alone. I'm pretty sure that every single athlete I have ever worked with has felt this at some point in time. It's okay, but it's also time to leave that fear behind because it is only holding you back from the things that you want to accomplish. Failing, messing up, saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, having the wrong answers, they're all parts of life. Okay, those things are supposed to happen and they will happen, (laughs) unfortunately. Um, But once you can accept that, it will be easier. Okay, this is going to sound kind of weird, but I want you to think about the worst thing that could happen. We're going to think about the worst possible case scenario. If you were to raise your hand in class or step up first for a drill or volunteer, whatever it might be, all those things that kind of feel scary that make us feel like afraid to look dumb. Okay, so maybe the worst things that could happen are you fall, you get back up and you try again, or people laugh at you or make fun of you and you decide it's not even that bad and you laugh with them, right? And then you learn from it and you move forward. Maybe you don't succeed that day. You are just like a big total failure that day but you've learned from it, okay? Are you starting to see the pattern? Sometimes we make those things way scarier and way harder than they really are. When you can accept that failing is going to happen and you learn to go with it, go with the flow, laugh at it, you're going to start to see improvements faster. That is is my main message is like, if you can learn, if you can roll with the punches, you're going to bounce back faster. You're going to recover from failure faster. And you're going to be, you're going to have the courage to take that leap, to make that first step, to volunteer, to possibly look dumb. Okay. And if you need a little help building that confidence to tackle 
failure and mistakes, I want you to just send me a message. Okay, send me a message. I'm here for you. Let's work on building that confidence. Let's create a plan for you so that you can do those things instead of always feeling afraid to look dumb or stupid or when thinking like, oh my gosh, everyone's going to make fun of me. Okay, send me a message. I'm here for you. I can't wait to hear for you, hear from you, and I'll talk to you soon. All right, Don, our leadoff topic is brought to us by Elite Sporting Goods. Elite Sporting Goods is located at 905 Grayson Highway in Lawrenceville, Georgia. Phone number there is 678-377-0270. You can also contact them at EliteSportsOrders at Yahoo.com. Anything you need, uh, balls, bats, equipment, uniforms, spirit wear, reach out to the folks at Elite, and they'll be happy to hook you up. They can ship anywhere in the country. And so that's going to bring us into our uh, leadoff topic where we're going to have our umpire grab bag with Jeff Meekins. Well, Coach Don and I are really excited to have Jeff Meekins back with us today. Jeff's here to kind of go through the umpire grab bag of questions that we've assembled. Coach Don and I learned a valuable lesson a little while back that uh, when people ask us <laughs> rule things, right. that we're probably better off getting somebody who really knows the rules involved <laughs> instead of us trying to uh, think back to what, uh, what we think we remember being the uh, case. And Jeff, we really do appreciate you coming on with us today. A couple of uh, things that have been uh, brought to our attention. The first one I wanted us to talk about, and this is one that I think is the uh, just a never-ending discussion, is about the running lane, how that is all supposed to be interpreted. The big, I guess, wild card in the whole thing now is with slappers, because the slappers basically kind of run into the infield before they start heading to first base, and so they, they're line of where they're going and how, and how they're getting to first base is a little bit different. But I wanted us to talk about the running lane a little bit. So the first part is, does the ball have to actually hit the runner for the runner to be uh, at jeopardy of being put out? First thing about the running lane is that for the first 30 feet of the way down the first base, there is no running lane. There's no running lane interference for that. Yeah, the runner does have to be contacted by the ball in order to have runner runner interference on the running lane. Because the thing that uh, people keep asking, and, and, and I think it does apply mostly to the slappers, the angle that they're taking, you know, kind of coming across uh, from uh, well inside fair territory and then and across the line and then, and then back to the bag, is that it's creating a very challenging throw for the, especially for the catcher third baseman sure. if they field the ball really close to, to home plate. And I think what uh, we've all kind of got this picture in our mind when we think about the running lane in that last 30 feet, that you're kind of thinking of like a right-handed hitter running a straight line from home plate to first base. And obviously for them, you know, being in the lane is something they should be easily, you know, be able to do fairly easily. But for these slappers that are running, you know, 10 feet towards the pitcher and then, you know, cutting back towards first base, that obviously they're presenting a different kind of challenge. And so what's the best advice, I guess, for us to give our coaches on how to handle that for their defense? Uh, they just make the throw, and if, uh, if uh, the ball hits the slapper that's in that position, uh, we're going to count on getting the out called. What else should they be thinking about trying to do to make sure that they make your job as an umpire easier to, to administer? Okay, it is a little bit of a different angle, I guess, as the, the slappers go toward first base. The best thing for the defense to do is just make the play that you would normally have to make. And then if you, you know, if you throw the ball and she's past that 30 feet, but she hasn't reached the lane yet, then she should be out. Well, and that's what we've thought, but I just wanted to make sure, because I think that what's happening now, and this is where the question of does it really have to hit the runner, is that I think some of our savvier coaches are basically trying to teach those interfere. kids to 
be as much of a visual hindrance. Uh, in, in, hindrance as possible to try to you know kind of mess with the defense's sight line and and those kinds of things. And so we've got the defense now is trying to do everything they can to avoid hitting the runner. They're changing the throw. They're throwing lobs. They're tr- you know doing all kinds of crazy things. And so the best advice we can give them is to make the throw um, that they're gonna that they should make. And if it hits hitter runner and she's uh, outside that running lane, that uh, the umpires then are in, in a position where they can call her out. Yeah, you go ahead and make your play. Okay. Uh, people get in trouble sometimes. You know, you'll see a kid start to throw and then she hesitates, and you know, then they want us to call something. But if you don't, if you don't make your play, you know, if if she hesitates or doesn't throw, then we can't protect her. She's only protected if she's th- if they throw and then she gets hit. Perfect. Okay, because that. I just wanted us to make sure, because like I said, I think what uh, we're seeing is the defense trying really hard to avoid her at all costs, and then we're seeing a lot of bad throws, overthrows at first base, that kind of thing, because the the defensive uh, teams don't understand that uh, they should just make the play, and if uh, she gets hit, she gets hit. The good news is for most of the uh, situations that we're looking at now with the slappers and the angle that they're taking, is they're pretty clearly inside the lane. For you know, for a big chunk of that time, and so I think, uh, and inside the field, so I think that it's outside the running lane, inside the field, so that they're uh, pretty obviously uh, at risk of being put out if they do get hit by the throw. Well, and that hesitation is all it takes, too, right? It's right. going to be a tight play regardless. Yeah. When, and Jeff, you can tell me if I'm crazy, but I think the running lane is one of those things that uh, it's kind of a carryover to uh, baseball. On the baseball field, it isn't as noticeable because when you have the 90-foot bases, you know, the catcher can take a couple of you know, steps into the infield, can kind of reset themselves and give themselves a better angle uh, to make that throw. Uh, but if we do that in softball, she's you know, shaking hands with the first base coach by the time we uh, sure. make the play. All right, second one, and this is one that uh, came up. I, I saw this happen in a game, and I was honestly dumbfounded. Hit her at the plate. She swings. She's way out in front. So she barely tips the ball, but when she tips the ball, it comes back and hits her in the helmet. Less than two strikes, and the umpire called her out with less than two strikes, called a dead ball and called her out because his interpretation was that the catcher didn't get a chance to catch the ball because it hit her. So let's talk through this. What should be happening if if we've got a swing and we've got a foul ball that hits the hitter in that situation, what what's the it rule and how does that really apply? Goes down to the dirt and then back up. No, oh, goes, just straight to yeah, her straight helmet. from the bat and hit her uh, from like she followed it straight straight from the bat into her into their face mask. Okay, that that should just be a that should just be a dead ball and a strike. A strike. Well, that's what we all thought too. But uh, in the game, um, and of course, I was just there watching a couple of the kids that I work with, so I didn't have a chance to argue or question or or ask anything about it. Uh, but I was pretty sure it was just a dead ball. But the uh, home plate umpire called the hitter out, and the base umpire almost seemed to be like you know at a baby, it, like uh, like he was supporting <laughs> it, like it was the best uh, best call of the week. And I just wanted us to touch base on it because in that one, it should uh, clearly just be a dead ball and a strike. Yes, if a ball, yeah, if a ball's uh, fouled off the hitter's bat and it, it hits the it hits the batter, she's still in the box. That's just a dead ball and a, and a, and a foul. Right, and when I don't think she could have gone anywhere, so I mean, some, that tenth of a second or whatever it takes. And if somebody was stealing, they'd have to go back? Yes, so it's, it's, okay. it's always a dead ball a dead then. ball. All right, so here's one, and this one you can tell me uh, uh, if this is some new loophole or phenomenon that somebody has figured out. But I saw a video, runner at second, the hitter's at the plate, 
pitch gets caught by the catcher, so there's no swing, there's no nothing. It's just a, a pitch that, that's thrown to the catcher. The batter steps out of the batter's box, and the runner at second has taken her lead off. She hasn't started to go back or anything yet. And the catcher basically just kind of tossed the ball at like three miles an hour to make sure that it hit the hitter, and the hitter was called out for interfering with the throw. My question is... The runner was called out because the batter interfered with the throw. Right, because the batter interfered with the throw. In the video that I saw, it was there were two outs, so it was the end of the inning. And I was curious about that. Is there some, I guess, question or, or, there. Or, or idea here that um, because the hitter was out of the batter's box, was it uh, that what opened the door for the quote-unquote uh, throw to be interfered with? I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the whole uh, scenario was, but... Uh, in the comments that I saw then with the video, it's like, well, I've seen this two or three times now where some, you know... It was we're, deemed intentional. Yeah, or... where defenses are doing this and getting out calls. So I know there's a lot to unpack there, Jeff, but uh, try to picture it in your mind and tell me what you think is going on. Okay. The basic rule on that is that if a batter's in the box, the catcher's going to throw. If the batter stays in the box and doesn't do anything intentional to interfere, then the batter's protected. If the batter stepped out of the box, that would be one foot out of the box. If, now, if the batter stepped out of the box and she interferes with the throw, that's interference and there's an out. Uh, the problem co- there comes in with somebody trying to draw interference with a throw that's not really going to have a competitive chance to make a play, but we're just trying to hit the batter. That's a little bit of a sticky area. You could You could make a case for unsportsmanlike conduct on that because we're not <laughs> trying to hit people yeah. with balls. Right. Well, and, and the thing that, that got my attention was that uh, this team obviously has... They got the results. Yeah, has seen something with this that they're doing it intentionally. And then, uh, like I said, uh, in the comments section, that was something that, the, that had happened more than once. And so because the hitter is stepping out of the box, that takes away her protection, correct? And so because she steps out of the box, even though it's not really a throw that has any chance at all of making a play, uh, depending upon what the umpire's interpretation is, I guess they could be calling out. They could be. And that's a little bit of a, a gray area. It's not really necessarily addressed in the book. It, to me, it's kind of like, you know, when you, if you go to tenure, you get, a, you get a certain amount of this get people trying to play games with the look back rule and kind of make runners magically disappear instead of softball plays and getting people out okay and this is another one of those things where we're trying to you know we're we're trying to kind of manipulate a rule instead of actually making a play right well and that was the thing that struck me about it is the catcher clearly is trying very hard not to hurt the hitter when she throws it i mean the ball's going like two miles an hour i mean it's it's not it's not a throw it's, I mean, it's like she almost kind of just like flips it a little bit at her to make sure that it hits her. If the hitter had somehow like dodged it, the ball would have rolled like four or five feet and stopped. That's right. I mean, it wasn't going anywhere. I like what Jeff said. It, uh, the throw wouldn't have had a competitive opportunity to have made a play. So, so, what, so we're, yeah. what we're counting on then is hopefully that uh, the umpires are kind of aware enough uh, situationally of what's going on to see that uh, there's a little bit of gamesmanship or a little bit of uh, trickeration, I guess, going on. and not rewarding it uh, by, I guess, uh, seeing the the default there, the the intent of of what's really going on. By the letter of the law, yeah, she's supposed to be out, but you know, but we we don't have to be automatons out there, you know, just by the letter of the rule, you know, 
part of our job is to know the game and understand, you know, what's a play and, and what's not. And so if somebody's not making a play and they're just gaming a rule, you know, you're not required to give them an out in that situation. Gotcha. This is one of those common sense uh, should over should uh, play a role, I guess, in uh, decision making a little bit. Try to av- avoid setting up a situation because I could picture this you know, continuing to escalate, and all of a sudden uh, the catcher making sure it looks like a real throw, and all of a sudden she's rifling the ball at that hitter from five feet away, you know, to <laughs> to draw you know the interference out. So Just keep uh, your feet in the box, batters. <laughs> yeah, stay, stay in the box. That way, uh, hopefully, nothing bad will happen. All right, so the last one I had for you, and this one, again, I saw this in a, in a middle school tournament uh, last weekend. The, the general question is, if, if we're, when we have the home plate meeting and the guidelines for the game are discussed and, and the umpire lays out the, the rules as far as time limit and uh, finish the inning and all that stuff, if those guidelines are different than what the tournament is really intending, what would have priority, the home plate meeting or predetermined guidelines? Because we had a, a situation where a team ended up winning a game because they didn't finish an inning, so the score reverted back, which is the way I understand it, the explanation that the umpires and the coaches had. You know, They agreed that that was the rules they were playing by at the home plate meeting, and then, of course, later on found out that the guidelines that were sent out for the tournament were different than what they had uh, assumed when they had the home plate meeting. So is there a, a golden rule that says that the home plate meeting is the, the final decision or is, or how does that work? This is interesting because there's not actually a rule book for this. Okay. Uh, just running tournaments a bunch of weekends. I generally prefer to go by what is in your tournament rules. Okay. Because that's usually been written down somewhere or at least sent out in an email. Now, the problem is, and this works both on the coach and the umpire side, is that not everybody reads that email. If there's a dispute, I try to go with what's been printed in the tournament rules beforehand. Sometimes that's easier to do than others, but with the time limit thing, yeah, you just go, okay, yeah, we're, or uh, the, finish the inning thing. You just say, okay, you know, yeah, this is what we're going to do. We're going to finish up the inning, or we're going to go with the prescribed time limit. Uh, because that that was what was agreed on, you know, before the tournament started. Right. When I I think from the way this played out, I don't think either coach or the umpires had really read the too much guidelines, it. and I think they were just kind of making it up on their own as they were figuring it out at the at the start. Because I know uh, after the game was decided and the one team won because they didn't finish the inning, even though uh, it probably would have gone the other way. Um, then somebody else went back and looked at the guidelines. So, oh, wait a second. You know, my, my team uh, got got the short end on this one. And so um, they ended up uh, living with what they agreed with uh, at the home plate meeting because they all had to kind of admit that none of them read the guidelines. So <laughs> cool. Uh, that's my list of questions for this week. I'm uh, really uh, excited that you were able to come on and, and answer some of these because I think uh, Coach Don and I might have had uh, – some different outlooks and maybe some different uh, assumptions on on some of these, but I think it's great that uh, that you're able to kind of give us some guidance as to how these things should be handled and to put a little bit of a common sense approach to the to the rule book so people can understand what exactly they should be doing on the on, on game day. We're glad to help out. Good deal. All right, Jeff. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Okay, we'll talk to you, I'm sure, soon, because this time of year, it seems like the uh, mailbag's filling up. So we'll, we'll have you back on here in a couple of weeks or a month or so and uh, get another three or four questions. We'll knock them out of the park. 
Looking forward to it. Thanks, Jeff. Have a good day. Jeff. Thanks. You know, I always enjoy getting the umpire's perspective because I think you and I would have screwed that up. <laughs> no, Jeff's really sharp, and I'm. I, I want him involved in all of our games. That's great. Yeah. No, I think that would be a good thing. So our cleanup topic this week, Don, is a list of questions that you've put together. Things that parents and players should be thinking about asking when they make a college visit. And honestly, I think questions that they should be considering uh, trying to get answers to all the way throughout the recruiting process to make sure that they're as informed as they possibly can be, Um, whether it's something that you specifically stop and ask the coach on a phone call or in an email, or just things that you're researching to make sure that you're finding out how all this stuff works. So Don, question number one. No, I know we've uh, we've got a situation where many of our kids are researching and trying to find the perfect fit for their um, college endeavors. And uh, in doing so, I think it's really comforting to know that you've done a good job asking all the questions before we do make that that big choice. A lot of times when we're visiting with schools and coaches and different people in the in that moment, there's so much excitement and nervousness that we do forget to ask some of these questions. So I've encouraged a lot of uh, our kids to actually just make a list. And as the coaches are presenting, you know, what their school is all about, they can be, uh, you know, checking off their list, the things that are covered, and then have a chance to ask some questions that might really be important for both them and the family and, you know, in making that big choice down the road. We talk to the kids about it. It's like, oh, well, that, you know, that makes sense. Yeah. And but we do have to actually physically start making a list. So, you know, we can talk about some of the things that we think are important. Yeah, and, no, I, and I think what uh, to go through that. Uh, yeah, because uh, I, th- I think you put together a pretty good list of things that people are asking about. And one of the things that, uh, you know, as, as we start on this, that I caution parents and, and players about all the time. As a matter of fact, I was just helping one of our gold team players and her mom the other day talking about some stuff about this uh, whole process. And they kept coming back to the, well, we don't want to be pushy. We don't want to be too aggressive. We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings for all of these kids and all all of you as parents trying to guide your kids through this process because this is such a gigantic decision. It's such an important choice. We have to kind of get past that and and, and be be willing to confident and comfortable asking questions about things that are important to you. Now, some of these are home stretch questions that you would be asking like after you've really zeroed in on a school and you know for sure that you're really uh, interested and that's a place that you'd really like to go. But some of them are also like really good eye openers, I guess, entry point questions to try to think about, well, even should I be considering a school like this? And I saw one on Facebook the other day. How should my daughter talk to a coach when that coach is calling from a school that's just too far away? And you know, they, they basically, well, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We don't want to burn any bridges. Like, well, you know, the reality of it is if you know you want to go to a school as close to home and a school from a couple thousand miles away is contacting you, there's nothing wrong with just being honest and saying, well, coach, thanks sure. for your interest. You know, um, I'm sure you've got a great program, but I'm, you know, I'm sure uh, I want to stay close enough to home that my grandparents can come and watch every game. Well, and that, that, that's an easy way to answer it, and, and it's an honest way that kind of moves the thing along for everybody. And quite honestly, Tori, too, that's a great point because we know a coach that might be interested in that player as well as our interest. We could also, too, share that name of that player with somebody a little closer to her. Right, and I think that that's and where We're happy the, to help one another. Yeah, yeah. And, and honesty in that situation is always better. If I was uh, still coaching and I was recruiting a player from Hawaii, 
And that player said, well, coach, you know, I really just don't want to go that far away. I want to be, you know, someplace, you know, on the West Coast where it'll be a little bit closer to home. Well, then I don't waste any more of my time trying to, you know, recruit a player that has no interest. And she doesn't have to worry about me wasting any more of her time, you know, by making phone calls or whatever it is are going to be unproductive because it doesn't, you know, the, the match just isn't Help there. in. Right. Yeah. So, all right, Don, so let's talk about some of the things that have come up in your discussions and let's uh, kind of talk through them one by one and, and let people know why we think they're important and, and valuable. That sounds great. First one we've got is a lot of schools have a fifth-year program, and that's just uh, an opportunity for some of the athletes to finish up their schooling. Um, it might be a situation, whether there's a redshirt year in between, to actually get a, a master's degree or something over and above their regular graduation timing. Fifth-year programs are something that a lot of schools do. The way the rules are written, there are high incentives for college programs to graduate all their players. Right. The higher your graduation rate is, the better. The higher your retention rate is, the better. Most schools build into their budget money for players to stay for that extra year, even though they're done playing, to make sure that they graduate. Now, sometimes they will have duties that they have to perform. Uh, sometimes they have to... Uh, come to practice and, and set up, you know, the field or do sure. the laundry or whatever it might be. There's, you know, there's often some sort of uh, Like an assistant coach right. type role. Uh, manager, uh, you know, student assistant kind of thing. But knowing whether the fifth year program exists is very important because most kids, well, I shouldn't say that. Things have often, changed a lot, a yeah. lot here in the last few years because a lot of kids are going into college now with college credits because they're doing the dual enrollments sure. and stuff like that. It's not uncommon for a player to need an extra semester or an extra year to graduate. And so if you go into it knowing, well, if it takes me a little bit extra, takes me a little bit, uh, an extra semester, an extra year to graduate that, you know, whatever my scholarship was for my you know first four years is still going to be there for my fifth year, that I'm still going to have the academic support, that it's, you know, I'm still going to have the financial support. That can be a, a, a make or break kind of decision because if, uh, let's say you pick a school that's $40,000 a year. Right. And... You know, because you have a scholarship for the first four years, it's very, very affordable. And all of a sudden, boom, you need to come back for one more year and you've got to pay the whole thing. Ouch. Knowing that in advance, I think, is very useful. Uh, don't assume that all schools have a fifth-year program. Um, and if they do offer a fifth-year program, make sure that you're finding out what exactly you need to do to stay in good standing to Be earn eligible. that fifth-year yep. um, assistance. And I think that, uh, as I said earlier, the vast majority of schools do it because it's graduation insurance. It guarantees that more kids will graduate, which is good for the schools and good for the athletic programs. Asking questions about a fifth-year program is a really good idea. Now, most coaches will talk about that up front because they know it's a positive and it's can, a strong selling point. Are we going to a school that's going to um, typically keep most of their players around? Right. Well, and uh, obviously, you know, we've whined and complained and been frustrated by the transfer portal right. more than uh, probably anybody wants to hear. But the retention thing has changed again a lot in the last couple of years because transferring is so much easier. More uh, of a common... Right. Yeah. Um, and the reality of it is if a, um, the two scores that uh, are measured is graduation rate, and then the second one is retention rate. And most of the time, if a player transfers from one four-year school to another four-year school, the school that loses the player is not penalized okay. uh, because the assumption is that by making a lateral move, the student is still just as likely to graduate from a, you know, from a four-year school. Now, if they transfer to a junior college, then that hurts your retention rate. If they 
obviously just drop out of school and, and don't continue anywhere, that's going to hurt your retention rate. But so there's uh, incentives for both of those. You can be penalized and, and not allowed to play in postseason and things like that. If your numbers fall low enough, you can be penalized the, the amount of scholarships you can give. So the idea of retention and graduation rates are something that's very important to the schools. Is there a red flag kind of point? for that? Or is that a, a tough question? Or is that something that we can just compare one to another? Well, I, I don't, I think it's like statistics, you know, we've talked about before, you can torture the numbers and get them to tell you anything you want. And whenever a school has a, a situation where their graduation rate falls off a little bit, there's usually an explanation. Um, mm-hmm. If their retention rate is low, there's usually an explanation. And, you know, sometimes it's a coaching change. Sometimes right. there's, you know, uh, you know, extraneous things that are going on. Obviously this, you know, Next five-year measuring period is going to be totally jacked up because of corona and, right. and all of that stuff. It's something to check on and, and, and be paying attention to. Um, if you're a high academic kid and you're looking at a school that says, you know, 70% of our softball players graduate, that would be shockingly low to me. Right. Number of athletes is gra- that graduates is really low compared to the university as a whole. Now, it's usually the other way around. It's usually much higher for athletes than the university as a whole, but you can compare from program to program. You know, if, if uh, school X has a 100% graduation rate, school Y has a 70% graduation rate, then we got to think about what's going on at those two places that are contributing. So, but yeah, so graduation and retention are really good questions. No, very good. The size of the school, and we might have more of a comfort in a smaller, you know, smaller population scenario, and that could play a little bit of a factor. Yeah, well, and to me, that's one of those entry-level questions. That's not one so much that I think they should be asking at the home stretch. Because we could look they, that up on, yeah, online. Yeah, and, and they should also be thinking that through at the very beginning of the process. Um, you know, One of the things that I've always told kids when we do the uh, recruiting seminar, which is available on our YouTube channel, as a matter of fact, if anybody wants to check it out, we talk about players should be creating a list of things that they're looking for which kind of goes along with the idea of the list of questions to make sure that they don't forget anything in their, in their conversations. All players kind of have a comfort zone of what they're looking for, how big a school is what they're looking for, how far away is what they're looking for. Now, there's still going to be the outlier that comes along uh, that uh, you know, a kid who started off thinking she wanted a small, tiny school ends up you know, falling in love with a big school. But I think it's a good place to start if I'm thinking of, you know, I've, I've spent my whole life in a small town with a small school. I know every single kid that, you know, that walks the halls of my school. I want to venture out and see a bigger place with a lot of different people from you know, all over the world. Then I think that's something that uh, is hopefully uh, being thought through at the very beginning of the process. Yeah, big difference between 9,000 and 39,000. Yeah. You know, on campus and the attention that we'll get from class to class. Yeah, and, well, and even yeah. here in Georgia, we've got some colleges that are under 1,000. And half that of are, them are athletes. And, yep. and a couple that are, you know, 50,000. Yeah. You know, when you go to, you know, a 50,000 student university, that's a, you know, and for a lot of kids, that's way bigger than, you know, the, than any place they've ever been you know, way bigger than their hometown. And so, you know, so I think that's something that kids are, are should be thinking about what's important to them at the beginning of the process. Um, and then that should give them some guidance. And again, it doesn't mean that they're not going to fall in love with someplace else, but right. usually not. Well, and sometimes we're, we're looking at schools that we're not super familiar with. Right. So these are things we can either look up online or put on our, on our list. Yeah. Um, Next one I wanted to bring up is, uh, what type of living arrangements are going to be involved in, uh, both maybe even our freshman year, uh, all the way through our senior year. Sometimes it changes. Yeah, no, that's a very good one. 
First thing that has changed drastically in this in the university college world, not that long ago, the living arrangements were kind of an afterthought. Nobody on the administrative side it really would be worried okay. very much yeah. about it. You know, the old classic dorms of uh, um, you know one giant bathroom at each end of the hall, and everybody sharing the 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 you know the bathroom, everybody sharing the laundry room, you know, all that kind of stuff was just accepted. And then something happened probably about fifteen years ago where schools figured out that they are in a competitive world for drawing students. And the quality of housing, the quality of food, and the quality of fitness became the driving thing that every school was was working to improve. If your housing was not nice, you were going to lose kids. If you for didn't sure. have, you know, and, and what became popular and is now the, you know, the really popular thing is more of apartment-style, suite-style living where a person would have their own bedroom, often their own bathroom, and then have like a community living room kitchen area. So if like like four people sharing an apartment, but everybody having their own bedroom. That became the... Big attraction. The, and and yeah. it was very, very popular. And obviously a big selling point for schools that were the first ones to do that compared to the big giant bathroom at the end of the hall where if one person flushes the toilet... The person in the shower screams because the water just went up 100 degrees. Right. So housing became a, a big deal. And and on your point about how it can be different, you might start off as a freshman being required to live in a certain dorm. Right. As a sophomore, being maybe being allowed to upgrade to a better dorm or suite. And then maybe as a senior, being able to move off campus and get your own apartment. There's other places where I'm sure that... Uh, Players are roomed together. That coaches, you know, group their softball players together. And so, is that something that a coach is going to assign you the people you live with, or do you get some say in who your roommates are going to be? And and, and when does that change? And when do you get to really be in charge of who you're living with? And so, there's a lot of questions that go into housing. So, and occasionally too, you might be in there with athletes from other teams. Yep. So it might just be you know all all ladies in one particular area, but they run on different schedules. So yep. they might be getting up early in the morning to go on trips when you need to be sleeping for, you know, big tests that day or whatever. Right. Predominantly, I think schools are trying to group athletes on teams together sure. just for that reason, because their schedules then are kind of tied to each other. So it's not as disruptive, but housing questions are, are very much open, be a high priority question for anybody to be asking. And again, I would, I would think it's probably on an earlier part of the process and the end uh, process part of the process but again you know if, if you're somebody that's spent your whole life you know you've got you know eight brothers and sisters and you're used to fighting over the bathroom in the morning no worries um, you yeah. know your, your attitude's going to be different than you've uh, you know, had your own personal bathroom and your own private bedroom um, in your you know house for your entire life and so those kinds of things are going to vary from kid to kid but we want to make sure we're thinking about them put it on your list yeah so registration too, Tori, I've got another one here. Registration. Do we get priority registration um, as an athlete at, at the school? Do they help us with that? Yeah. Is that well, and that and that's, do? again, another one that you should be asking. And again, I think as you're getting closer to deciding, it's going to vary from school to school, um, but almost all schools have some sort of priority registration for their athletes. Most of the time, it's, it's staggered by who should need the most Priority there. Priority for, yep. for classes. So it's usually seniors are number one, then juniors are number two. Um, underclassmen, freshmen and sophomores usually don't have quite as tight a place in the line because they've got more flexibility in the classes that they're taking. But the idea behind priority registration is when you're in that home stretch and you need you know two specific classes to graduate, 
that we're going to do everything we can to make sure that the athletes that need them get them. The other thing that's so challenging, depending upon the sport, you know, like for softball players at the college level, they're playing their, their real season in the spring, which is also traditionally the last semester of a your... senior would be there. Right. And so you know, trying to, to map it out so that those seniors can you know, still be able to do all the softball stuff they need to and want to do as seniors, but still be able to get all the classes that they want. I think the vast majority of schools do priority registration, but a lot of them are going to do things differently from place to place. And there are some schools, I'm sure, that are super high academic schools that don't have the same attitude about priority registration and favoring one group over another that some other schools might. And so, um, again, that's definitely a fair game question and one that you should be asking. Awesome. So study halls and tutor, Tori, I know I had a couple of classes that were tough for me, and it was nice to have uh, resources to go to through the athletic department to um, you know, get through some of those tough classes. Other students, you, Tori, might have been very comfortable with all of the studies and not wanted to be uh, put in a, a room at a certain time every day right. as a freshman. There's, there's some requirements at some schools, so that might be something to ask, do you think? Yeah, no, definitely. And, and the vast majority of schools are offering tutoring support for their athletes. I don't think uh, I know of a single school that doesn't have some sort of academic support system in place for their athletes, and especially the schools that uh, are, are giving athletic scholarships because they're investing money in those athletes. They want to do everything they keep can to there. keep them eligible yeah. um, and, again, to retain them and help them graduate. Asking about tutoring and, and how it's done, what's available, if it's free because you're an athlete, all those kinds of things I think are, are definitely good questions. And then the study hall thing, I think you can assume that as a freshman, you're going to have study hall. <laughs> you have to um, prove. Right. And, and typically, yeah. I think that's what most coaches do, is they start off with mandatory study time until you prove that you don't need it. Right. And Show us a report card, and then we'll get you out of this study hall scenario. Right. And now for some kids, depending upon, again, the coach's philosophy, if they're a really strong student coming in and they've proven, you know, they've been at a, a high-achieving high school program and they've got, you know, straight A's and a, a really good SAT, really good ACT score, um, they might cut that kid a little bit of slack right from the beginning. I always wanted all the freshmen to start off with some study hall time right, right. Um, because I just wanted to have a little bit of control Assurance. and a little bit of, uh, of knowledge that they were definitely doing something. Obviously, academics is, is a high priority for, for all the kids because we want to make sure that they're getting their degree and, and, and staying eligible to play. And, but asking those questions is definitely you know, a, uh, an important one, especially the free tutoring and free academic support, free academic counseling uh, for athletes is something that would be a, could be a deal breaker for some kids. No, and on that same note, Tori, uh, labs and practice times. I know some schools uh, are more helpful than others, but would that be something that we should consider asking? Yeah, no, that, that, that yeah. was the very nice way of saying it. Um, <laughs> Everybody has to come to grips with a very simple and important fact. For the vast majority of high-level softball programs where the coaches are expected to win, those same coaches are going to have quite often limitations or expectations, expectations yeah. of what players are doing. And the vast majority of them expect those players to be at practice every day. That can and often does mean that there's some academic programs that don't match up at that school with the idea of being a high-level softball player. You know, I, I tell kids all the time when we do the recruiting seminars is, 
what do you want to do for a career? And when they start talking about nursing, doctors, lawyers, even teachers in yep, some practicum, places, yep. you know, that it's very difficult to do those things and be a, a, a collegiate athlete at, at, at a higher level. And it's not just D1, which is something that everybody has to understand. And it's not just Power 5. I know of coaches that are at you know, medium uh, level schools that still have the same expectation. They because, want to win conference championships. Right. and Yeah. And the thing that everybody has to think about is for the college coach, that's their career. And all college coaches know that at some point in time, if you don't win enough, you don't get to keep your Raises, job. Raises, hires, and fires. Right. Yeah. And so if one of my strong motivations as a coach is to try to keep my job, it's better for my job security if all my players are at practice every day. No doubt. You know, it's better for my job security if all my players are highly motivated to make softball very, very important to them. The idea of are there any uh, forbidden academic programs? Are, is there anything that I'm going to be discouraged from doing? And again, that's an entry-level thing you can be working on at the beginning. You know, looking at schools' websites and looking at what the you know, declared majors are for the athletes, I think, is a really telling thing. If you're looking at a school and you've got juniors and seniors on the website that have nursing and pre-med and uh, pre-law and you know, the different you know, sciences. It's a little that, more comforting. Um, that probably means that they're working harder to help those kids stay involved. But I've also seen some really high-level programs that will basically you know, tell kids flat out, you know, sorry, no, no nursing, no you know, no sciences, no, you know, whatever it is, because the labs and the things like that are always going to conflict with practice. I've also seen this situation where uh, if you're good enough, you can study whatever you want to, but other people don't. Right. So, (laughs) so yeah, so asking that question is a good one. Um, But do, do your research and don't just necessarily always count on the answer that you get. Cause a very good friend of mine, um, when she was playing, was told in the recruiting process that she could go into vet school. She could be a veterinarian. Sure. And when she went to her first academic meeting with her academic guidance counselor for athletics, you know, because the athletic department had a, a counselor to help the kids put their schedules together, that person looked across the desk and said, so you're better than all your teammates? You, are, you, know, you're, you think you get to do something that they don't get to do? Ouch. And so the coach didn't even have to, quote unquote, be the person to break you know, the news. To, to, go back on what they had told during the recruiting process, but they had somebody that did it for them. So asking those questions, and that's one that I think you definitely need to dig in on, uh, take a good hard look at, and do some detective work to make sure that, uh, that it matches up. Awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's run into uh, playing time. Am I going to be your starting shortstop? Is that a question that, uh, or where, where do you see me, Tori, in, uh, in, in my time there at, at School X yeah. um, in terms of playing time? This is the black hole of recruiting. I guarantee you'll be my starting shortstop. Um, And the reason I say black hole, because I think that most college coaches are thinking that a player is going to fill a specific role when they recruit them. I never recruited somebody thinking, eh, we'll find a place for her. I always recruited somebody looking at them and, hey, she's going to be a shortstop. She's going to be a pitcher. She's going to be a catcher. But... We've talked about it enough times on this podcast that you know the very best team I ever had had a whole bunch of kids that thought they were catchers. Four or five catchers, right. That when we added them all up, made a really good team. The idea of players being expecting to be promised playing time, I think is... That's a red flag. I think it's it's a question you have to think very carefully about how you're going to ask it. I tell players all the time, 
especially early on in the process, your questions should not be, what are you going to do for me? Your discussion should be, what can we do together? And what can I do for you? There you go. Unfortunately, we have crossed a bridge, and it's definitely a travel ball thing, um, where if I'm going to go to a team, I'm going to select a team to play on, part of me deciding what team I'm going to go to is what they'll promise me I'm going to get, whether I deserve it or not. And so I think we have a lot of that same attitude now carrying over when kids think about playing in college. Well, I've always been a shortstop. Am I going to be your shortstop? Well, you know, and I would always tell kids when they would ask those kinds of questions, like, well, if you deserve to be. Sure. You know, you know well, am, am I going to be your number one pitcher? Well, yeah, if you're my best pitcher, you'll be number one. You know, I mean, How I, hard are you going to work? And, yeah. and, but, I, you know, we've always preached competitiveness and, and competing for spots and the best players play. And that was part of our mantra. You know, we tried to recruit kids that wanted to come in and prove that they deserve to play. You can ask questions about playing time, but I think when a coach answers it the way you want them to answer it, it's because they hope it's going to happen that way. And making a decision based solely on, well, they promised me I'd be the shortstop, I think is a gigantic trap. No, I think that's very true. Let's change over to um, insurance, Tori. I know a lot of schools will have a supplementary insurance. Right. Some cover everything. Um, I know for some families, uh, the insurance piece is uh, challenging or tough or a little bit uh, scary. And to have that uh, at least talked about, if you're getting down to whether or not a school fits all your other needs. Well, and, and again, this is going to vary drastically from school to school, but predominantly most school athletic insurance programs are supplementary, which means that if a player has uh, an, injury. an injury and has to have knee surgery, that mom and dad's insurance is going to pay first, and the school is going to pay whatever their the, primary, yeah, whatever doesn't mm-hmm. get covered. There usually are situations where the school's insurance is set up so that if a player has no family insurance, right, that the school you know will then be their primary provider. But again, it's a it's definitely a good question to ask. Um, you know, and, and might not be your lead question, right? But, yeah. Well, but I think especially if it's getting down to you know, I'm I'm going to pick school A or school B. It needs to be on and, your list. Yeah, and if school A is no, we are, you know, our insurance pays for everything. If you get hurt here, don't worry about it. You're never going to see a bill. You're never going to see any paperwork. We're, you know, we're going to take care of everything. Wow. And right? the other school is well, we're going to submit it to your parents' insurance first, and then whatever they don't pay, we'll pay the balance, or you know, however that all lays out, you know, I think that that might have some influence on somebody's decision. Sure. Um, I, I think it's probably going to be more important to the parents, obviously, than the kids. Right. And I think that's a mom and dad are going to be worried about a question much more so than the kids are because the kids already know if they get hurt, somebody pays for it and it's not them. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll hope it never comes up, but right. it might be something good to have yeah. on our list. Well, but the re- reality of it is an awful lot of kids get hurt. And a At lot of kids point, have yeah, surgery. We have you things. Know, um, yeah. You know, we, we talk about it all the time, you know, that uh, the, the kids that often make it to high-level college programs have worked so hard their whole lives that there's a lot of overuse injuries and stuff like that that ultimately leads to having to have some sort of surgery at some point in time. And so knowing who's paying the bill, I think, is a, is a valid question. And how it works, yeah. Very cool. Going to go in a little different direction, and uh, I'm just going to throw out there, what kind of equipment am I going to need when I come to campus? Do I need practice gear? Do I need gloves and bring my bat? Or how does that work at, at each school? Right. And, and again, that's going to vary drastically. There are some schools that have 
you know, very specific and very strong uh, sponsorship deals where they provide everything. You get a glove, yep. you get a bat, you get spikes, you get you know, seven pairs of socks, you get three pairs of practice pants, you get all your uniforms, you're going to get travel gear, you're going to get bags, you're going to get all the stuff you need. And there's other places where you're going to play your whole career with the glove you brought with you. Right. Um, if you want to get a new bat, that's great, but you and your mom and dad are going to go get a new bat wherever you're going to get it. You know, there are some places that are providing practice gear, some that don't. You know, there's just all the, the variation in that is going to be gigantic. And I think that, uh, again, uh, you know, some of that question, I think, is driven by necessity. Some of it, I think, is, dr- is driven by the keeping up with the Joneses aspect. Because sure. everybody likes swag. It's great to, you know, to get to school and, and you, know, you go in the locker room and in your locker, you've got your, you know, three new pairs of shoes and your, you know, new, you know, equipment and your new gear is, is always a fun thing. Uh, but that's going to vary drastically from school to school. The other thing that if a school has a specific sponsorship, if you go to Oklahoma, you don't get to use the bat you want to use. You use the bat that they hand you. They provide, right? Right. And there's no discussion. You know, if you go yeah. to UCLA and you're going to play in Easton Stadium, you might be swinging an Easton. I'm pretty sure that you can count on using Easton equipment, right? And it doesn't matter what you think or what you want. So, so the so it's a two sided discussion. It might be great. Wow, jackpot! Look at all this free stuff I've got. But if it also means, wait a second, I, now I got to swing a bat that I hate. Right. Okay. That's tough. All right. So another one, Tori. I love to eat. I, I eat often and I, I enjoy my food when I'm eating it. Do some of the schools have a different food scenario for um, on-campus eating and then for road trips? How does that work? Yeah. Uh, again, it's going to be as different as you can imagine. You know, again, when we talked earlier that schools now know that their food service program is crucial for getting students to come in. And so, you know, the on-campus food services are better and better now than they used to be, but there's still going to always be limitations. You know, do you have a meal plan? Do you get X number of meals a week? You know, now one of the things that uh, was a big push um, at the Division One level is, you know, players saying that, you know, they would go to bed at night hungry because they weren't getting enough food because right. their meal plan didn't provide enough. So schools now having snack they stations to, and, yeah. and things like that so the kids can stop on their way back to their dorm at night and, you know, grab a couple of granola bars or a couple of bananas or whatever it is, and that stuff's readily available to them almost 24-7. You know, how you're going to eat when you're on the road, again, is going to drastically go from school to school. There are some places that it's going to be nothing but fast food and, and, and Subway subs and things like that. There's other places that, uh, you know, it's going to be Applebee's really nice restaurants. No, and yeah. some places, I mean, really nice restaurants. Right. You know, I mean. Appetizers, the whole bit. Yeah. there. I mean, and, and we would always have like a, a limit. If we went to an Applebee's or, or someplace like that, you know, say, okay, you can spend 15 bucks. And that was what, you know, they could order whatever they wanted to as long as it didn't go over 15. And then, of course, three kids would all come over and say, well, I've got $2 left. She's got $2 left. And I've got a dollar left for our $5. Can we order a, a dessert as long as we share it? You know, so we always have that kind of negotiation going on. Yeah. Um, but the whole idea of, of how that's going to work is going to be gigantically different. And so if you're a person that uh, really likes food, really likes to eat, or just be, from a common sense perspective, a making sure that you're going to be able yeah. to live a healthy life while you're on campus. You know, again, that's a, a really fair question to be asking and, and uh, something that uh, you know, certainly is going to weigh on you know, some people's decisions. No, no doubt. So after that, we've got uh, evening time, and I've got lots of extra time because I study hard during the day. Our 
teammates in our program, are we required to stay within curfew hours? Again, it's going to vary drastically. Um, yeah. Now, we are definitely in more of a player empowerment era than we used to be. I think you know most schools are going to have some sort of curfew on game day night, you know, maybe 48 hours before. You know, I think that you're always going to have some sort of curfew when you're traveling as a team. But I, th- you know, I think the you know, day in, day out, do you have to be in your dorm room at 11 o'clock every night? Um, sure, there are some schools that still have some sort of rules and regulations about that kind of stuff. Once you're sleeping, uh, yeah, um, staying healthy, yeah, especially if you've got a you know 6 a.m. workout the next morning. You know, they don't want you at the bar at two o'clock in the morning. Uh, you know, the night before, or even just you know out. Yeah, yeah. Don, you try to be so nice about this stuff, <laughs> but anyhow. So I think it's a, it's definitely you know worth que- a question worth asking because it's going to be as different as the school and and the coaches. Okay, next one's kind of on the same same note, but holidays and time off. I've had situations where well, and I've had kids that are uncomfortable with having any curfews. So some coaches are a little bit tighter and and all that. So uh, I think that's a fair question for sure. But holidays and time off. I've also known for students that go to some big schools that are expected to be back, for instance, right away after Christmas break. Yep. And, you know, they get Christmas Eve and Christmas Day off, and then they're expected to be back at school. Yep. Is that something we should ask up front? You should definitely be asking up front. Softball being a spring sport, it's not uncommon for schools to ask kids to come back early. The calendar limits the number of days that you can practice during the year but there's some loopholes in the way the rules are written that if you practice when school's not in session, that you can practice longer days and you can practice more days in a week. That's interesting. If a coach thinks they can get a really you know big leg up by bringing the kids back a week early on, on winter break and have sort of like a training camp kind of idea where they're going to have two or three practices a day. Some camps and, and clinics. Right, and, and really work hard to get ready so that when school starts up again, they're, they're way ahead of the curve. You know, that kind of thing does happen. And so I think you want to make sure that you're checking with each school as, as you're trying to figure it out. Um, one more, Tori, summer workouts. Are we going to be expected to do a particular summer workout, or am I my own um, in the it, summer? Again, it's going to vary drastically, but you can count on almost every college program in America having some expectation for your summer training. And some are going to have a very specific, you know, here's the program, you do this program, you do it six days a week to you know the most minute detail. Yeah. And others are going to have the, well, we expect you to come back in better shape than you left. No doubt. Um, but uh, summer workouts are something that I think everybody expects. I tell kids when they're going to be freshmen that whatever they sent you for the summer workout heading into your freshman year, you should double it. Because what I think most college coaches do is they dumb it down when they send out that first summer workout to the point that because the, it, it, they know if they send what you really have to do, <laughs> it seems so overwhelming that kids won't do anything. So they figure if they send you half of it, and you do half of it, at least you're We've doing got a good something. base. Yeah. Right. But so, yeah, so count on summer workouts. That's going to happen. One other one that was kind of interesting or, or maybe has some um, variation in it, but uh, rooming when we're out of town and how that goes when we go out of town. Um, sometimes it's uh, two people to a hotel room. Sometimes it's four. Might be a big difference, and that might play in someone's comfort. Right. Well, and that has, uh, again, a lot of variation from school to school. Um, sort of the general rule of thumb now is if uh, one head, one bed. So the ideas of, you know, and back when we first started doing it, you know, we would have four kids in a room all Absol- the time because we absolutely. didn't have any money. We had to, yeah. Um, 
And, and so that has changed a little bit, but it's not changed everywhere. And so you have to make sure that you're thinking about it. You know, some places will have like a, you know, a rollaway or, or a cot or something like that brought into a room. You know, so if you're the odd man out and you get the cot when everybody else gets the bed, you know, I think you want to know how that stuff might work. So for sure. Uh, but again, it's going to vary drastically. And those are definitely questions worth asking. So Tori, that, that was just kind of a quick list that we put together. And um, as you and I talk, or as we talk with kids, we suggest that they have an actual physical sheet of paper in front of them. There's going to be other things that coaches share with them that they think are very interesting that they're going to want to ask the next coach when they do talk and have conversation with. So we can add to these lists as we go. Yeah. And the the whole thing in the end is to be really happy with the choice we make and to be comfortable both from the parent parental standpoint and you know from our athlete side. When they make that choice that they wake up every morning knowing they're at the right place and, and that they've really looked into it. Yeah, well, um, we, we want that to happen for all the kids. Yeah. And you know, the stuff that we've talked about today is just scratching the surface of the kinds of questions that I think that they're going to have and, and should be asking. But hopefully it kind of gave some people some ideas of some things that should be on their list. And for the parents and players that are entering into this process or it's out there on the horizon for them, they can start to think about the stuff they need to be working on. Yeah, but without that list in front of you, you get in that, that panic mode or you get uh, you know a little bit in awe. Oh, yeah, you're excited, you, you're yeah. in awe, you're nervous, you're all those things. You know, you just don't want to miss out on any of the Keep that list with you. Awesome. All right, Don, so that's going to bring us into this week's coaching tip of the week. Uh, coaching tip of the week, uh, we want to emphasize from a coach's perspective, are pitchers attacking the zone? And so the reason I wanted us to talk about this, again, I had a chance to go out and watch some softball, and uh, the number of full counts and walks and things that I saw were, were alarming. And I think that uh, the reason we want to emphasize this and work with our, our pitchers on understanding the value of attacking the zone and trying to get ahead and pitching from ahead is that there's a lot of benefit in it. It doesn't necessarily lead to as many strikeouts, but it definitely leads to more easy outs. And I think that one of the things we have to work on as coaches is helping our players understand why that's so important, why that's so valuable, and what the benefits to all of us are when that's the attitude that we have. No doubt. Um, and it works both ways. If uh, you know, if we're thinking from the pitching end, what a joy is it to to be able to try and spin it a little bit more or nibble more at the edges. And the only way to, to have the luxury to do that is by getting ahead. Right. And, you know, we talk with hitters about kind of watching to, to see how many first pitch strike are being thrown so we can kind of create our aggressiveness too. We're always going to be on guard and ready to hit. But, you know, from the pitching standpoint, it, it's a joy when you're ahead because you can, you can really get a little more creative and, you know, a little bit more... Uh, aggressive with our spins yeah well one of the things that uh, i ended up doing and this is several years ago probably about 15 games into the season we had been struggling with the whole attacking the zone concept so we ended up having a meeting with our pitching staff and basically sat down with them and i had mapped out up to that point obviously at the college level we had fairly good statistics stats, yeah went back through the, the scorebooks went back through the stats and had a spreadsheet created which basically showed First pitch strike, or... right? What what the what the other team was doing, based on what the count was, and 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 it was really simple. It was the left hand of the column was you know one ball no strikes, and then I listed the outcome every time we had a one ball no strike. This is how outcome. It so yeah. six three six three <clears throat> double double triple double you know home run six three you know 
fly ball to center and and whatever did that for each yep. combination. And what ended up happening is it was really clear very quickly that outcomes when we had more strikes than balls was gigantically in our favor. Um, you know that we went from having uh, you know an awful lot of big hits and and uh, really bad outcomes for our pitchers when it was one o two o three one count. Yeah, and you know we use them as an example because there's all kinds of charts and things like that that you can find. You know MLB does one where you know they show you know the batting averages for all players at all these different counts and all that stuff. But to me, what really made it hit home was that they could see this is what was happening to them. You know, they sure. had a chance to kind of look back at it and say, okay, so you know, we're seven and eight after our first 15 games or whatever we were, and we, we think we should be doing better than that. We think we should have, have a better record. We should be winning more games. And, of course, to emphasize it, I color-coded it you know, when, I, when I did it. You know, so a double was in orange and a triple was in pink and a home run was in red and all that stuff. And so as you looked at the spreadsheet, you could see all these colorful numbers rose where we were behind in the count. Yeah. yeah. And and how few red numbers there were when we were ahead. Of course, you know, there's no strikeouts unless you have two strikes. Because obviously it takes three to get the out. So yep. you know, so they started to notice like, wait a second, all my strikeouts are in this situation. And and of course all pitchers like strikeouts because that's their one stat that tells them that they're doing something you know extraordinary. Strong, yeah. So we started using that as a as a tool, and then we would update it after every weekend to show how things were going. And all of a sudden, what started to happen was when we started, okay, here's the next group of games that got added to the spreadsheet, the numbers started changing. And all of a sudden, there were a lot less outcomes, period, when we were behind in the count because they had all made up their mind that they wanted to get ahead. They wanted to pitch ahead. Sure. And so it became our goal that we wanted, if if we didn't, already have an out after three pitches. We wanted the count to be one ball, two strikes. So you could throw a first pitch ball, but then you had to have your mind made up. You were going to throw two strikes. Yeah. Um, but so by that time, we were always going to be ahead by the third pitch. And then all of a sudden, they were still getting some strikeouts, but they were also starting to get a lot of easy outs. Ground balls, so I was going to say, yeah. yeah. So instead of having to pitch you know, 150 pitches to get a complete game, all of a sudden, now they're down to 110. And all of a sudden, you know, instead of being out there for two and a half or three hours, they're out there for two hours or an hour and 45 minutes. Yeah. And all these things started gaining momentum to where they started to think about how much better it was. And, our defense, and the wins and losses yeah. ended up our, taking care of themselves, too. Yeah. Yeah. Our yeah. defense improved drastically because our hitter or our defense players all knew that something's going to happen. They weren't out there, you know, losing their concentration, losing their focus because ball two. Ball three. Now we're going to work hard. Now we're going to and a double seven, in the gap. Yeah, yeah, seven foul balls and then a double. And so all of a sudden we, you know, did the breakdown when we got to the about the thirtieth game. It was you know whatever. It wasn't probably exactly thirty, but around the thirtieth. And all of a sudden, you know, the first fifteen we were seven and eight. The next fifteen we were like thirteen and two. Right. And the pitchers went from having ERAs of two and a half, three, three and a half, four. In that next stretch, they're all, you know, 1, 1 1.2, 1.3. And now the strikeout numbers did go down, but the success rate went way up. And I think sometimes we have to use, you know, just something as simple as a graphic that a player can look at, a a map that shows them. And you could have just told them that 
but to see it makes right. a huge, huge and, impact. And, and, yeah. and seeing that spreadsheet of, you know, and here's what happens to Don when Don's pitching and it's 1-0, 2-0, 3-0, and you're looking at it going, man, I'm getting rocked when I'm behind in the count. Right. And, and you kind of know it when it's happening, but to have that tool to look at and say, oh, my gosh, I can't even, you know, talk myself into thinking it's not happening now because it's so obvious. But so coaches, it's those kinds of things. It's you coming up with the technique that you need to come up with to convince your pitchers that what we're after is outs and good quick outs you know, one pitch, two pitch outs, you know, seven pitch, eight pitch innings are a thing of beauty. And we have to work really hard to do it because we know that kids who pitch are hearing over and over and over again, well, how many strikeouts did you get? How many strikeouts did you get? And so many people are equating how they're doing as pitchers by how many strikeouts they get instead of how many games they win or how many outs they get. And so we got to work really hard from a coaching perspective to send this message and to reinforce why it's so important, instead of maybe, uh, you know, like a lot of people do like helmet stickers or, you know, those kinds of things for rewarding their players for doing something outstanding, instead of getting a, a sticker for a number of strikeouts, how about we get a sticker or a, you know, whatever it is, the recognition for, you know, seven pitch or less innings. There you go. Yeah. And those kinds of things make that our primary goal. That's the thing we're going to recognize the most. You know, if we have a chart up in the dugout of listing the things that we're doing well, every time we have a, an inning where they get seven, you know, get out with seven pitches or less, you know, they get a smiley face or whatever it is, you know, but just something that's going to help reinforce the value of attacking the zone because we know it's going to make our pitchers better. It's going to make our defense better. It's going to make the game better. No, I like it. And there's always stretches in a season where coaches need to do some of these things, right? Yeah. And especially if we're struggling, and especially if we have pitchers who are really hung up on how many strikeouts they're getting, and, and typically p- pitchers' parents are hung up on how many strikeouts they're getting. And I understand strikeout's fun, yep. but strikeout should be the result of you pitching ahead and dominating hitters. It should not be this battle of will where you have to throw 15 or 16 pitches to every hitter to finally get a strikeout. To get them, right. And so, and I think that to me is the big difference that, you know, a lot of pitchers would think if I throw 15 pitches and I get a strikeout, that shows you how great of a pitcher I am. Better than two in a ground ball. Which to me is a, is the, the, the phenomenon we're trying to overcome because to most of us, you know, two pitches in a ground ball or two pitches in a pop-up to the shortstop would be a whole lot easier and a whole lot more fun then a 15-pinch full count finally got a strikeout at bat. Foul tip that's caught by the catcher. Yeah. yeah. So, so coaches, that's your coaching tip of the week. Emphasize attacking the zone. Get your pitchers on board with that idea. So, Don, that's going to wrap up 185. Um, make sure you check out our sponsors, Anderson Bat. Take, it, uh, take advantage of the EFP20 discount, Elite Sporting Goods. Uh, make sure you go to patreon.com slash everythingfastpitch. Become a patron if you can, if you see value in what we're doing. Also, make sure you go to the fastpitchprep.com website, order your Square Cuts training discs, over 700 blogs. Uh, Make sure you take advantage of all the information that's available to you there. So for Coach Don McKinley, our producer Stan Lewis, this is Coach Tori saying thanks for listening. Talk to you again next week. 